existence. We'll see all of this through Saul this evening. Just to refresh your memory, because it's been a couple of weeks since we were last together. We ended the last message with the first few verses of 1 Samuel chapter 15. There God had Samuel instruct Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. The reason the instruction was given with respect to the Amalekites is because they were the first ones to attack the Israelites. As they're they're in the Exodus, as they've left Egypt, they're very vulnerable. The Amalekites are the first of the foreign nations to attack the Israelites, and they do it in a very vicious way. They attack the flank. They attack the, the, the part of the caravan that is most vulnerable. They attack the ones who are moving slowly, the ones who perhaps are, are elderly or, or, or infirm, the ones who are in the, in the back of the caravan that maybe they're sick. There's some sort of reason why they're moving slowly and they're more vulnerable than the other parts of the caravan. And so God issues judgments against the Amalekites. It won't be fulfilled until some generations later. But back at the Exodus, God issues the judgment. In Exodus 17, we're told the Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. In other words, perpetual conflict. This is kind of the background, and we'll get a little bit more as to the reason for the judgment. It's a very severe judgment against the Amalekites. We'll see that in a few minutes. But let's just go to verse 1 of chapter 15 by way of refresher. We saw verses 1 through 3 last time, but let me just spend a few minutes on those first few verses. Chapter 15, verse 1, reads like this. Then Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. What Samuel is doing here is he is emphasizing the importance about, uh, the importance of what he is about to say. He says, I'm the one that the Lord used to anoint you as king. The Lord is now using me to communicate to you his instruction, his order. He used me to anoint you as king. Now, as king, he's going to use me for a different purpose. He's going to use me to communicate a very serious order to you, God's word. And so listen, the text says. Listen is the Hebrew word shama. It doesn't mean just to hear, come one ear in ear in one ear and out the other. It means to hear, to listen with the idea of obedience, to follow what you're hearing. That's what Samuel is saying. Samuel is speaking for God, and so if Saul disobeys Samuel, he's really disobeying God. And of course, that's Saul's MO, disobedience. So we should expect disobedience in chapter 15 from Saul. He will not fail to deliver in that regard. Keep reading in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. The Lord says, I, I, I will punish Amalek. And so what he's saying is, I'm choosing you, Saul, as my instrument of punishment, as my instrument of judgment against the Amalekites. And by using the name Yahweh Sabaoth, which is translated in our English, Lord of hosts. Hosts is an old English word for armies. What Samuel is saying to Saul is he is reminding Saul about the solemnity of the order 
that God has given Samuel to deliver to Saul. He's saying, the Lord of hosts, this is, sometimes when you see Yahweh, Yahweh Sabaoth, Lord of the armies, or Lord of hosts, sometimes it's with respect to the angelic armies, like when you see it in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is brought up into the vision of God on his throne in the temple in heaven, and the angels who are hovering around the throne say, Kadosh, 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 Yahweh Sabaoth, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh Sabaoth. There are the references to the Lord of the angelic armies, because, of course, he is the king of the angels, and angels are not just uh, a pretty, sweet little things. They're warriors. So often, Lord of the hosts is, is a reference to the Lord's position as Lord of the armies of angels. But this is not armies of angels. This is Lord of the armies of Israel. And so when Samuel uses that title to describe God, he's saying to the king of the army of Israel that the Lord of the army of Israel, who has issued an order to the king, has issued a military order. Because this is a military instruction, a military mission that the Lord of the armies of Israel will send the king off to do. Look at verse 3. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Kill everything that breathes. Everything that breathes is God's order to Saul, this is a very serious instruction from God to Samuel to deliver to the king of Israel, Saul. God is very, very, very serious about his promise to Abraham. We're studying that promise in, at our 930 on Sunday mornings. Remember the promise in Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Here you have an example of God cursing those who curse the Jews because the, Amalek, the, the, the Amalekites tried to take advantage of the Israelites and they're the first ones to attack them at, during the Exodus when they left Egypt. And so God remembers. God means what he says and he says what he means. And God fulfills his word always, especially when it comes to the Israelites. When people attack the Jews, they're attacking God's plan to bless the nations. Genesis 12, 3, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's why God, which we will see this upcoming Sunday at the 9.30, that's why God gives this special promise that he doesn't give to the Africans, that he doesn't give to the Asians, that he doesn't give to the Germanic peoples or the Scandinavians. He gives it to a Semitic man named Abraham. And the descendants of Abraham, the racial and spiritual descendants, have to be both in order to be a true Jew in the Scripture. God gives this promise to them because it is through them that God will bless the nations. And so God takes his promises very seriously, and he will not tolerate attacks to his plan to bless you. Because in the end, that is why we take God's promises to the Jews so, so seriously, is because it's ultimately about your blessing. And this is why the devil tries to destroy the Jew, because the devil hates you, hates God's design to bless you. It is through the Jew that we are blessed. 
And so the Amalekites tried to attack the Jews. That violates God's promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And so God instructs Saul to utterly destroy the Amalekites. That was not immediate judgment against the Amalekites, but it was certain judgment. And so this is the context which we saw last time. God required everything to be dedicated to him. That's the phrase here, utterly destroy. Haram in the Hebrew, utterly destroy. It's the, it's, it's the phrase that is sometimes used to put under the ban. Right? Remember, God told Joshua to put Jericho under the ban. Nothing is to remain. And here, it's the concept of being dedicated, separated unto God. Not separated unto God for holiness like we are, but separated unto God for destruction. Everything was to be put under the ban. As we saw last time, the Amalekites were under God's judgment, not, be, not just because of their merciless attack against the Israelites. It was also because of their grotesque wickedness and evil. We saw that last time. They were part of the Canaanite group. They were part of the group who would sacrifice their babies to Moloch. What, what they would do is, is, is Moloch was a... Uh, they'd have an image of Moloch with his, with his arms and his hands and they would put it over the fire, and so they'd put the baby on the arms of Moloch, and, it would, and the baby would roll into the fire. This is part of the grotesque wickedness of the Canaanites, and the Amalekites are part of the Canaanites. And so God does not tolerate wickedness. In our, in our great foolishness, we take, as the Amalekites did, as the Canaanites did, as the Jebusites, as all the ites did, we take God's patience for weakness, because God doesn't drop the hammer immediately in response to our sin. We think it's all good. I guess he's okay with that which I'm doing, that which our culture, culture is doing. We mistake his patience, his giving us more time to repent. We mistake that for weakness, and we do it at our great peril. The time for judgment had come to the Amalekites. Keep reading in verse 4 of chapter 15. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. This is a very large army for ancient times. Verse 5, Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Malachites. Let me just take a detour here for a minute and talk about the, the backstory here of what's going on with the mercy that Saul is showing to the Kenites. The Kenites were a tribe that lived among the Amalekites. And Saul was to spare them because they had shown, the text here says, they had shown kindness, kindness, to the Israelites when they were coming up out of Egypt during the Exodus. You've got one group, the Kenites, that show kindness. So God's going to show them mercy. He's going to bless them by not having them in the group that's going to be destroyed. And then you have the other group, the Amalekites, who persecuted the Israelites. And God's going to judge them. You have both sides of the Abrahamic covenant coin if I will curse those who curse you, and I will bless those who bless you. And so the context here 
is that there's a connection between the Kenites and the Israelites because remember, Moses married a Kenite girl. His father-in-law, Jethro, was a Kenite. Remember, Moses is in Egypt for 40 years. Then he leaves Egypt because he, he murders a, an Egyptian guard who's beating one of the Israelites. And he real, realizes, I've got to leave. So he leaves, and then he lives among the Kenites for 40 years. The Kenites, to make it, just to add one more ite in there, the Kenites are part of the Midianites. And so sometimes the Kenites are called Midianites, or sometimes they're called Kenites. Moses marries the daughter of Jethro, who's sometimes called a, a, a Kenite, some, sometimes called a Midianite. And so then Jethro, one more name, also, known, also called Hobab. That's just a cool name, Hobab. Right? I don't know why we don't name our kids Hobab anymore. But you've got Hobab, who's also known as Jethro, who's a Kenite, also called a Midianite. And Hobab slash Jethro, he joins the Israelites in the Exodus, and he shows them kindness. God remembers when I say God remembers, and when the text says God remembers, it doesn't mean that he forgot and he had, you know, he had to put a reminder on his calendar to remind him a few generations later about the mercy. It, it's, it, it, in, in the text, remember is the idea of God takes action. And so we, so we have the events back in Numbers, the events of Numbers 10 verses 29 through 32, where Moses said to Hobab, also known as Jethro, the son of Ruel, the Midianite, also a Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, Moses says, we're setting out to the place of which the Lord said, I will give it to you. Come with us and we will do you good. For the Lord has promised good concerning Israel. But he, Hobab, said to him, I will not come, but rather go to my own land and relatives. Then he, Moses, said, Please do not leave us, inasmuch as you know where we should camp in the wilderness, and you will be as eyes for us. Jethro slash Hobab, the, the Kenites, they know that area, and so they know the lay of the land, they know the terrain, and so they'll serve as scouts for this huge group of Israelites, the two million Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness, verse 32. So it will be, if you will go with us, Moses says to, to, to his father-in-law, that whatever good the Lord does for us, we will do for you. And sure enough, Hobab, Jethro, does serve as the scout, and his, his, his people serve as the scout, and they go with the Israelites. And so God blesses the Kenites. The Kenites should not be palling around with the Amalekites, fast forward in time to, to, to Saul, the Kenites are hanging out with the Amalekites, and the Amalekites are wicked. And so God, nonetheless, spares the Kenites who are with the Amalekites. So when God sends Saul to destroy the Amalekites, he's to tell the Kenites, you need to leave so that you're not collateral damage in this slaughter that God has sent me to execute against the Amalekites. That's just kind of the backstory as to, to why Saul 
lets the Amalekites in it and tells the Amalekites to, to get out of there. Verse 7, So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. If you look at a map here, you've got the uh, Gibeah is Jerusalem's up here, just west of the Dead Sea. Gibeah is just a little bit further north. Gibeah is uh, uh, Saul's home base. And so he, he musters this huge army of Israelites. They go as far as the, the desert of Shur and to Havilah, even on the, uh, on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba. This is a huge area of land that an army, this, this, this very large army, traverses and pursues the Amalekites in this conquest, in this destruction that God has sent them on. And so it's a great victory for Saul. We keep reading in verse 8. He captured Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. This is saying that he destroyed the Amalekites. Let me just go back to this map one more time. This is saying he destroyed, destroyed the Amalekites in this region. There were Amalekites up here in Ephraim, but the description here is the Amalekites that are, that are, that are from this region. Saul destroys them except for the king. The king is called Agag. And this is a name that the Amalekites used not necessarily for one individual, but for their line of kings, the way the Romans would say Caesar, Caesar Augustus, Caesar Nero. Caesar was, was the name of their king, or the, the way the Egyptians would say Pharaoh, Pharaoh so-and-so, Pharaoh so-and-so. That's the way the term Agog was used for the kings of the Amalekites. Now, there's another term in the scripture that's associated with Agog, and it's Agagite. Agagite is used once in the scripture to use or to refer to an Amalekite many generations later. An Amalekite in the book of Esther. You remember Haman. And Haman wants to destroy all of the Israelites. He's very high up in, the, in King Ahasuerus's court, the, the king of Persia. And so Haman devises this plot to kill all the Israelites. He's an Amalekite. And ultimately, God moves events through Esther, the queen, a Jewish queen of the king of Persia, so that, in fact, Haman would be hung on the, on the gallow that he had desi designed for Mordecai. Haman was an Amalekite, and so it's possible that if, I mean, perhaps if Saul had obeyed God's instruction, Esther might never have been needed to step in to save the Jews. But God, because he is who he is, he takes even the wrath of man and he uses it to praise him, to use the, the text of Scripture. What I mean by that is he uses even sin to proclaim his name and to elevate and bring glory to his name. So he uses the sin of Saul. He allows it, 
and generations later you still have an Amalekite who's remaining, and that Amalekite is Haman, and that Amalekite tries to, to kill all the Jews in Persia, and God uses a woman, Esther, to end that event because God is always in control, and he can even use the sin of people to bring glory and honor to his name, and we honor God's name through the book of Esther all these generations later. Then in the next verse, we see that it wasn't just the king whom Saul spared. You see this in verse 9. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Here we have intentional, deliberate disobedience. This isn't like, eh, I kind of didn't understand, and I was confused. No, no, no. This is knowing, willful disobedience of God's directive. In verse 3, God says, do not spare them. And in verse 9, it says, Saul and the troops spared them. In verse 9, it says they were not willing to destroy them. This is willful, intentional disobedience. Ultimately, Saul's disobedience stemmed from his pride. They spared the trophies. You spare the king so you can put him on display. That's what the Romans would do. When the Romans would bring one of the kings of Gaul, they'd put him in a cage and they'd parade them through Rome and people would throw things at him and they'd mock them like they were an animal in a cage. Well, that's what you do with the king. You don't do that with someone who just works in the field. No, no, no. You want the head guy so that all of your troops, so that all the people of Israel can say, wow, Saul, you are an amazing guy an amazing leader, an amazing military leader. We see your trophy right there with King Agag. That's why he spared the king of the Amalekites. And that's why he, it says he and the troops, it's important to remember that. We're going to come back back to that in a second. He and the troops spared the king of the Amalekites, and they spared all the nice animals, the choice animals. The, The choice animals were the trophies. It's part of the spoil, part of the booty of war. We'll see more about Saul's pride in a few moments. Keep reading in verse 10. And then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commandments, my commands. This language, when you have language that says God regrets something, this raises the issue of immutability. Malachi 3.6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken, and he will not make it good? Samuel will say the same thing in verse 29, which we'll see next time. If God never changes, if God doesn't repent, if God is not like a son of man who repents, then what's happening here in verse 11 where it says God regretted? I mean, that's a pretty strong word, right? I mean, regretted is the, is the Hebrew word nacham. It's the nifil, nifal stem of the Hebrew word nacham, which means to be sorry. It means to regret. That is the word, that is the verb that is used to describe God's decision to have made Saul king in the first place. 
This is language of accommodation, just like an anthropomorphism or an anthropopathism. Anthropomorphism is, is a combination of two Greek words that are squished, squished together. Anthropos, meaning human, morphe, like, you know, when you, when you hear somebody, they morphed. It's like they, they, they took a different, something came, came, uh, uh, came into a different form. Morphe means form. So anthropomorphism, anthropos, morphe, you put those two together and you get the idea of human form. God has eyes. God has hands. God has feet, the scripture says. Well, that's not literal. God is spirit. God doesn't have any characteristics in terms of physical characteristics of a human. But an anthropomorphism is a description of accommodation. Or you have an anthropopathism, anthropos and pathos. Anthropos, human, pathos, meaning feeling or emotion or suffering. And so you put those two together and you get a, a figure of speech. Both of these are sp- figures of speech. You get a figure of speech ascribing human emotions to God. So when the scripture says that God was jealous or that God grieved or that God was moved to pity, these are anthropopathisms. And let me be clear about something. I'm not suggesting that God does not have emotion. I believe that God does have emotion. I believe that God made us in his image and as his image bearers, he made us with emotion. Now, our emotion is different than God's emotion. We have emotion in different ways. Our emotion is often infected with sin. Our emotion is impacted by limited knowledge. Sometimes, oftentimes, we make a decision based on partial information because that's all we have. We're not omniscient. And then we learn new information and we change our mind. We say, that was the dumbest decision I ever made. I can't believe I made that decision because I learned more information that I didn't have when I made the original decision. That's how we think and that's how we operate. And then maybe we're even grieved by the original decision. That's not how God's emotions function because he's not limited by finite knowledge. He's not limited and and impacted by sin as we are. God's emotions function in perfect harmony with his other attributes. Omniscience, omnipotence, holiness, righteousness, divine joy. So when the scripture says God regretted something, in this case he regretted making Saul king, it doesn't mean that something surprised God. It doesn't mean, I didn't know that. And then he learned it, and then he said, well, that sure was a bad decision to make Saul king. No, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that anything surprised God. It doesn't mean that God learned anything. He doesn't learn anything. He already knows all the knowable and always has. It doesn't mean that God was disappointed with some prior decision that he made. God regretting, as we see that phrase in verse 11, God regretting is a way of saying that he changed his actions in response to our actions. God regretting means he changed his actions in response to our actions. God's character, God's essence doesn't change. His condemnation of sin is constant, has been throughout the ages, always. His essence doesn't change. His character doesn't change. We change. 
We're the ones who change. And God's immutable character prompted him to change his actions towards Saul. Because Saul changed. See, we view God from a, from a, a human perspective. Sorry about that. From a human perspective. And when we view God from a human perspective, we say, oh, you changed, God. God's always been the same. We're the ones who changed. And he incorporated our free will into his plan since eternity past. And so when you see a phrase like this, that God regretted something, it's a way of saying that God changes actions in response to our actions. So let's see some concrete examples. Like in Genesis 6, humanity became evil, so God changed his action towards humanity. Instead of divine compassion towards humanity, he instituted divine wrath towards humanity. Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry, same Hebrew word, same stem. This is the, the, the nifal stem of the Hebrew word nacham, same, same construction as we have in 1 Samuel 15. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Again, we're seeing anthropopathisms. In response to humanity's wickedness, God changed his approach to humanity. And instead of continuing his divine compassion on humanity, he poured down his divine wrath, his vengeance on the earth through a global flood. Or let's flip it. Let's, let, let's, let's take the example, but let's look at, look at it from reverse. In the book of Jonah, God issued the command. God told Jonah, you go tell the Ninevites that they're done. They're done. I'm going to destroy Nineveh because of the great wickedness of Nineveh. But the Ninevites repented. The Ninevites changed their mind, and so God changed his action toward them. Jonah 3.10, when God saw their deeds, that they had turned from their wicked way, then God relented, same Hebrew word, same nifal stem, the Hebrew word nacham. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Remember, this is what drives Jonah bonkers. This is what drives Jonah crazy, because God's just too good. Jonah gets angry with the goodness of God. He, he says, I knew you were going to show them mercy. That's, I knew that before I even left Israel. And that's why I got on the ship to go to Tarshish, because I knew you were going to show them mercy, because I know you're a God of compassion, slow to anger. This is what it says in the book of Jonah. And so Jonah knew that God, or, or he was concerned that God would, would relent if the Ninevites repented. And so it's not that God changed. It's that the Ninevites changed. And so God changed his approach to them, which he had always planned to do since eternity past, because it wasn't a surprise to him. He had always weaved their free will, just like he weaved Saul's free will, into his plan since eternity past, before he even made the universe, before he even made the earth or any of these individuals. In response to the Ninevites' repentance, God showed them divine compassion instead of divine wrath, and it's the same thing for you and for me. Right? He changes his approach for us because we come into this world already under judgment. 
His position towards us is already a position of vengeance and fury. When we even are conceived from the time of conception, from the time of birth, we are sinners subject to God's wrath, and we're already under judgment. Remember how Jesus put it in John 3.18, He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. That's how we come into this world, already under the wrath and judgment of God because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. That's the person who's already under judgment if they haven't believed. And so in response to our repentance, our change of mind, God changes His action towards us. It's not that God saw one of us and said, Oh, wow, I'm so surprised that he trusted in Christ. Mm. No, 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 no. This is all part of God's plan since before eternity passed. And so when you see the phrase, God regretted or God repented, don't think that God learned something, that God was informed of something, that God was surprised about anything. It's always been part of his plan. To change his action in response to the action of some particular individual. In our case, instead of wrath, we receive mercy when we change our mind about Christ. And instead of anger, we receive compassion. Immutability means that God's plan, God's purpose never changes. God's character never changes. He's always loving and righteous and omniscient and holy and omnipotent. All of the omnis. His character never changes, but he does respond to our changes, and he incorporates them into his plan. For Saul, this meant that God has changed his approach with Saul in response to Saul's willful disobedience. God has already told Saul that the dynasty is over. You're not going to have a dynasty. And before this chapter is finished, God will tell Saul that you're over. Your kingship will be finished. We'll see more detail about that next time. All of this troubles Samuel. It troubles him greatly. Look at the rest of verse 11. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. The Hebrew word here for distressed is hara, and it means to be hot. I mean, we kind of lose a little bit here in the NASB. Distressed is a little bit of a tame word. It means to be hopping mad, hot under the collar. It means angry and hot. That's the, 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 the gist of this Hebrew word. Samuel knows that God has mocked, that, that, that God has been mocked by Saul, by Saul's disobedience. Samuel knows that God does not tolerate disobedience, especially from those whom God has put into power. God puts leaders in a nation in power, and God does not tolerate them mocking him. Do you believe that? I mean, when we see it, when we see the, 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 the mocking everywhere in our nation, the mocking of God, especially by our leaders, it's easy to, is that really, to say, is that really true in the Scripture? It is. Don't mistake God's patience for him tolerating wickedness. Samuel knows that Saul has mocked God through his disobedience. Samuel knows that God does not tolerate disobedience. And so Samuel cries out to God. We're not told the content of this prayer. We're just described, 
we're just given a description of the intensity of the prayer. I believe Samuel is both angered and grieved. Both angered and grieved by Saul's disrespect of God. This is a great lesson for us. I get angry and I grieve for our nation and for our leaders who mock God consistently, habitually. Angry and grieving. And and what we learn from Samuel here, who is angry and grieving at his government, that's what the king is. He's the government. What Samuel does is he goes to the one who's the boss. He goes to the one who controls human history. He goes to God and he lays his issue out. He lays his anger. He lays his grief. I don't like this, God. This hurts God. I'm troubled by this God. I am hot under the collar, to use the the meaning of the Hebrew word, but I put it in your hands because you're sovereign, God. This is a great lesson for us as we see our government engage in wickedness over and over and over. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. Of course we should vote. But in the end, God picks the leaders God puts leaders in place. God moves events to put this leader or that leader in place according to this time and that time. And God even moves the leaders to accomplish his will. What does the scripture say? The king's heart is like a water. God just moves it. God's in charge. So when you're angry, legitimately angry at at, at a wicked government, when you legitimately grieve at a wicked government, do what Samuel does here and cry out to God. Put it in God's hands and trust in him even when you're frustrated. Keep reading in verse 12. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Now, Carmel here is not Mount Carmel. Carmel is a, is a town about seven miles south of Hebron. Saul's, make, uh, you have Gibeah here, this is Saul's capital, and then Gilgal's just to the east of that. Saul was on his campaign down here where the Amalekites were. He comes north, this is, he's on his way home, and he stops here at Carmel at this town just south of Hebron, and he does a little bit of PR work, let's call it. His PR work, his public relations work is he hires some spin masters and he says, let's, let's build ourselves a monument. What Moses did when Moses defeated the Amalekites back in Exodus 17 is Moses built an altar to God, giving God the credit. But here we have Saul building a monument to Saul giving Saul the credit, not giving any credit to God. Saul's pride is on display here. His arrogance is being exhibited so that the people know. This, this is, the reason I say this is PR is he wants everybody to know, I've got my trophies, I've got King Agog in, in here with me. Everybody see? I conquered him, I conquered the Amalekites. I got all this cattle and sheep and all this 
the, the spoils of war, and now we're going to build a big monument to me so that everybody knows, all my people, the Israelites know, that I'm legit, I'm powerful, I'm significant, and this is a way to solidify his base, to solidify his power. Saul started his reign in humility. You, remember, you may remember in chapter 9, he's hiding behind the luggage. Saul, you're the king. Where's Saul to anoint him king? And they can't find him because he's hiding behind the luggage. He, he's like, I, I'm not sure I want to be king. He started in a way that was humble. But now as he's gotten some success, as the Lord has given him success, his pride has come to control him. And pride drives disobedience. Pride pushes us to disobey God because we have another God. It's called the the unholy trinity of me, myself, and I. I'm God when I'm prideful. And there is no room for any other God but me. And it's the same way with you. But of course, as the old King James says, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Saul's destruction is certain. Saul spared the Amalekites. So God, in his poetic irony, will send an Amalekite to kill Saul. We'll see that in the beginning of 2 Samuel when we get there. Keep reading in verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Sometimes people use God talk to deceive others, right? They say, bless you, brother. Bless you, brother. Now, let me say, there's nothing wrong with those words. There's nothing wrong with the words, bless you, brother. But in the wrong lips, those words can be very wrong. Here in Saul's lips, the words, blessed are you of the Lord. Nothing wrong with those words in and of themselves. But when someone tries to use God talk to manipulate someone else, that's very wrong. And that's what Saul is doing. He's trying to deceive others with this God talk. It's kind of like how people use Christianese sometimes. Saul is a manipulator, and his pride is driving him in all of this. His pride has made him a liar. Of course he didn't carry out the command of the Lord. He stands here before Samuel, who gave him the instruction to utterly destroy the Amalekites, and he says, yes, blessed are you. I have carried out the command of the Lord. That's a straight-up lie to Samuel, who is the servant of God, and Samuel knows it. Look at verse 14. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Don't miss Saul's word selection. Don't miss the choice of words that Saul uses. They, they, The troops spared the best of the Amalekite animals, but we, he includes himself, we have utterly destroyed the rest. As a poor leader, Saul not only is a liar, but he blames others for his wrongdoing. It's kind of like Adam. 
Remember Adam in the garden when, when God comes to him and Adam says, and God says, where were you? And Adam says, I was hiding. And God says, why were you hiding? God knows all the answers, of course, already. And Adam says, well, because you were coming. And I was naked. And I was afraid. And God says, who told you you were naked? The woman that you gave me, God. She gave me the fruit. Right? So Adam blames the woman and blames God for giving him the woman. This is, this is kind of poor leadership 101. You have Saul the same way. Saul is blaming the troops for not having killed all of the animals. And we know from verse 9 that Saul is again lying because verse 9 said that both Saul and the people, both of them, spared the choice animals. Saul is trying to play Samuel. That's why he starts to kind of work on him with, the, with the, what we would call Christianese. What Saul is saying is these fine animals, these choice animals, have been spared to sacrifice to the Lord your God, Samuel. I know you're a religious man, Samuel. I know you're a man of faith. And you're going to love these animals, okay? Because these animals, these animals don't have any spots. These are nice, healthy animals. They're perfect for sacrifices. You're going to love this, Samuel, because I've brought these animals here. And I, and I know sacrifices are important to you because you're, you're a religious man. This is kind of the idea of, of the, that's baked into this phrase, the Lord your God, so that they can be offered and sacrificed to the Lord your God. Keep reading in verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak. Oh, yes, 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 I'm very interested in the Lord's words, is what Saul is suggesting here. Verse 17, Samuel said, Is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of of the Lord. Do you see how everything's flipped? God sent Saul to eradicate the sinners, but now Saul is included in the group of sinners because Saul has done evil. He's done evil in the sight of the Lord. His pride deceived him. He decided it was right to take the good parts, the choice parts of the spoil, the nice Animals, but in fact, he was doing evil. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 5, verse 20 Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. Willful rebellion against God is evil. That's what we're seeing here. Keep reading in verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord. Let's read that one more time. I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And have brought back Agog, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. So for the second time, Samuel insists, and he probably said it with a real strong voice. He insists that he is in the right. He defends his position. He defends his decision. He insists that he has obeyed God. Pride is self-deceptive. Pride rationalizes It's absurd for Saul to think that bringing back Agog, 
Bringing him back as a trophy is the same thing as utterly destroying Agog. That's just patently false. But Saul has persuaded himself because his pride has brought him to rationalize his position. Keep reading in verse 21. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the... This is Saul still speaking to Samuel, defending himself. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Here Saul lies again about the troops, making it sound like they alone were the ones who chose the, the, the good animals as part of the spoil to, to not kill them. Keep reading in verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. This is the passage that Saul has been working towards. This, these are the words, excuse me, that Samuel has been working towards. These are the words that Samuel utters that are, that, are, that are most, I mean, these are all significant words, of course, but this is the point that Samuel is working towards in this conversation. It's what God values. What God values over ritual and sacrifice is obedience. It's not that ritual is wrong. The Mosaic law was full of ritual. The Mosaic law is full of sacrifices, animal sacrifices that were to be offered. It's that Ritual without reality is wrong. Ritual without reality is hypocrisy. Ritual without reality is trying to manipulate God. God, I know that I'm supposed to be doing these motions here in this religious, religiosity, in this, these religious customs, these religious rituals. I don't really care about them. But I do want some mojo from you. I do want some stuff from you. So I'm going to go through the motions even though I could care less about your interests. I could care less about your word. I could care less about your ways. But I'm going to go through these emotions of, in that case, the Mosaic Law sacrificing. And we don't do that as Christians today. All right? We don't do that. No, of course. Christians are often in open rebellion Going through the motions of godliness with a rebellious heart is an abomination to God. Today, many Christians live in open rebellion against God. Maybe they harbor hate against one of their fellow believers. Maybe they're habitually gossips. Maybe they reject God's design for sex. Maybe they reject God's design for roles of husband and wife in marriage, which are distinct roles. And then they have the temerity the audacity to then go through the motions of Christianity with an attitude that, God, I'm entitled to these things that I'm doing. God, these things are legitimate that I'm, that I'm doing. And then we have the temerity to go through the motions of Christianity. We go to a Bible study. We go to church. We pray. We go through the, through the, through the rituals of, of Christianity at the same time harboring these acts of rebellion, these attitudes which always produce action of rebellion. And we think that God is pleased with our activities, with our outward ritual, with our outward activities, when in our heart we love rebellion against God. 
we're not that different than Saul. When we find ourselves in that position, we must confess our sins and turn from them, run from them, and ask God to help us flee the sin. What's, what's going to happen in this chapter, and we're going to run out of time here soon, so we'll see it next time. But what we're, what we're, what we're going to see in this chapter is Paul is, is Saul, not, not Paul, Saul. Saul's not interested in repentance. He's not interested in turning from his attitude of rebellion against God. And so there are consequences there. There are consequences when you have an attitude and an approach towards God of rebellion. People think, believers sadly think, that God is pleased with them simply by ritual, simply by religious activity. Not only is God not pleased with that, but he finds it utterly repugnant. Look at what he said through Isaiah in Isaiah 111. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. God finds empty ritual repugnant as an abomination as it is described here in Isaiah, the sacrifice and ritual that pleases God is obedience. The word that we kind of recoil at, the word that the spirit of the age teaches us to repel and to resist. But the sacrifice and ritual that pleases God is obedience, and obedience always comes from humility. Look what Micah said. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? You see the connection. Humility and kindness. Humility produces kindness. Humility produces obedience. And blessing never occurs without obedience. Obedience always precedes blessing. And disobedience always precedes punishment. Humility produces obedience. Pride produces disobedience. God loves one and God hates the other. And we'll see more of this next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you challenge us by it. And we ask that you give us more rain in the hill country. We thank you for the rain that you gave us. But we need more and we ask for it. We also pray for our country. We ask that you would give us godly leaders. And we ask that you would restrain those who are wicked and promote those who seek your ways. We ask that you give us safe travels home this evening. And we thank you for the opportunity to gather in peace to study your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.